Ketamine and psilocybin completely different compounds working on completely different receptors. The ketamine is working on the glutamate receptors, the NMDA receptors, and the psilocybin is working on the traditional sort of serotonin, the 5-HT2A receptors in the brain. And so, look, I think there's a big knock-on and spillover effect to how patients feel with both of these processes, but the, the psilocybin, the magic mushrooms, as people call it, or I think that, that name has got quite a lot of connotations to it, but um, I think the, the magic lies in the person and not in the, in the mushrooms. But the evidence for both of these processes is really starting to come through now, and it's quite exciting. So uh, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore in America have done really, really unbelievable rigorous research using psilocybin or magic mushrooms to help patients with depression and smoking cessation. They've got Alzheimer's trials, they've got trials for anorexia, uh, and the, the evidence is coming through now. There's really great evidence for new onset cancer diagnosis in patients that are really anxious having been diagnosed with cancer. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Reinvent Health podcast. Here we get to chat to some of the world's most interesting and influential people about everything to do with physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. If you want to make healthy changes and live a better life, you are in the right place. Please don't forget to rate, leave a review, and share with everyone who wants to live their best life. And now your host, Nikki Robertson. Dr. Sean Thornley is an anaesthetist turned family practitioner with a keen interest in preventative medicine and mental health. In today's show, I chat with Dr. Thornley about ketamine infusion therapy for the treatment of mental health and chronic pain conditions. If you have any questions for Dr. Thornley or would like to contact him, all his contact details are available in the show notes. Dr. Sean, welcome to the Reinvent Health Podcast. Nikki, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. So I'd like to start off by chatting about your background and your interests. And you know, when we chatted a couple of months ago, feels like yesterday, but it was must have been three months ago, you, know, you, you explained that you were originally an anaesthetist and let's go into your progression of why you went into medicine in the first place and what it took to get you to where you are today. Yeah, thank you very much. So my background is with anesthesia. I have a diploma in anesthesia. I'm not a specialist anesthesiologist, but I have a diploma in anesthesia and I sort of ran a hybrid general practice and anesthetic practice right up until 2020 and I really enjoyed the anesthetic work, but I sort of missed the patient interaction. And so I moved into general practice in 2017, working with my general practitioner who'd uh, been looking after me since I was very, very small. And so I learned quite a lot from him and we worked together for a few years. And at that stage, I was doing general practice until about one o'clock in the afternoon and then rushing off and finding anesthesia lists at that stage. And as time's gone on, I've really realized that I love the interaction with patients um, a lot more than when they're completely knocked out. So I've moved more away from the anesthetic side and I've uh, opened up my own general practice, practicing out of Lonial and Four Ways. So my background is in anesthesia, but I really do love the general practice and have quite a keen interest in mental health and mental health conditions 
and the sort of new age treatments for those uh, in conjunction with the standard treatments that patients are experiencing already. It's really come to light in the last couple of years how standard treatment doesn't work for everybody. And I think you can say this about all branches of medicine, that not every solution fits, you know, not every lock and key fit together. And I said in nutrition, not every protocol suits everyone, obviously, because uh, our brains work differently, our DNA is different, um, our environments are different. And so, you know, when it comes to treating mental health, it's no wonder, you know, that either a person who's suffering from depression or PTSD or anxiety gets put on a cocktail of drugs, which may or may not work, and they have side effects. And then this new branch of looking at it, or new way of looking at treating PTSD specifically, but also depression, um, started cracking through the the. the the brick wall, basically. It's the best analogy I can think of um, in the last couple of years. And there's been a lot of research um, by some major universities to show the, you know, I suppose the benefits of, of, of alternate therapies such as ketamine infusion. So let's chat about what these alternatives are and um, not whether or not they're available here, but like how did it come to light? Who who figured out that ketamine, which is a pretty standard anesthesia drug, if I'm if I'm correct, could work for somebody who's suffering from major PTSD? It's quite fascinating. I mean, ketamine is a wonderful general anesthetic, and I would use it quite a lot in theatre. Uh, it, it's really cardiac stable, and uh, uh, there's many many indications for it. But when they initially invented it, it was initially approved only for animals. So you often get told that. Uh, if you mention ketamine to someone that this is a horse drug, well, yes, it it is a horse drug and a dog drug and a cat drug, but it's also a human drug. And so it started off with use in animals and then moved across to humans. And so in the the Vietnam War, they would use ketamine as a preferred anesthetic agent while they were out in the fields there with guys with their arms and hands and legs and that blown off because it was really cardiac stable and it was it was a wonderful anesthetic where a lot of the other anesthetics would drop patients' blood pressures too much. So uh, it's been used since the 60s and 70s on animals and on humans. And uh, just as a general anesthetic, how it came about as a, as a sort of mind drug, as a sort of depression drug, um, was, was, was quite interesting. I think they would find that patients would, uh, for example, they'd be suicidal and uh, they would want to jump off of a building or and then the, the paramedics would uh, give them a sedative and, and ketamine would, would potentially be one of those options. And they would say to them the following day or the following week, well, how are you feeling? And, and they would say, well, you know what? I was suicidal yesterday and all of a sudden today I'm feeling mm-hmm. much better. Or they'd come and have their shoulders reduced if their shoulders were dislocated. And, and a, a week later they'd ask them how their shoulder was doing and it would be, fa- you know, they'd be feeling better from a shoulder point of view, but their mood was much better. So I think they're, it sort of drifted into the psychiatric field and uh, it has yeah. since exploded. And I think it's exploded quite significantly over in uh, in North America and uh, the United Kingdom. In South Africa, we have ketamine clinics in South Africa that have also opened up since 2020. And, you know, psychiatrists have been using ketamine uh, infusions for patients with, with uh, refractory depression for quite a few years now in South Africa as well. So... Um, you know, it's considered as an alternate therapy, but hopefully there'll come a time where patients will be offered this type of a therapy, uh, alternate therapy as a first-line option as, an, as opposed to something way down the line. So 
Um, it's at the moment it's only really licensed for patients with uh, quite severe depression and with uh, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and chronic pain conditions like migraines and chronic regional pain, those sort of conditions. So um, I've been doing ketamine infusions now since 2018, and I really have seen a huge success rate with my patients. It's made a huge difference. It's, it's not for everyone, but it really, really does seem to make a difference, especially for people that have tried all other treatments. So uh, that's the sort of introduction to the ketamine therapy, but people are starting to wonder now, well, what is ketamine? Well, yes, it's a general anesthetic agent, and how does it work? It doesn't work any way like the traditional antidepressants work. Uh, yes, there's a bit of spillover between the neurotransmitters, but it works on a completely different mechanism. It's a glutamate receptor and not the standard serotonin and noradrenaline receptors okay. like the other drugs that we take. But then people say, well, is this a psychedelic? Is this something that's going to make me trip? Well, oh, yes, absolutely. This is, uh, it has features that are very much like a psychedelic mm. experience. And so a lot of people are quite scared going into this process and uh, and, and we have to prepare them quite carefully beforehand. Yeah, that's the next question I wanted to ask you is a, a, a psychedelic or like a psilocybin versus a ketamine, what is the difference? Does it work with the same um, neuropathways? Is it different? Is it not known? Is it almost a case of, well, let's see what works with you and, and, and decide from there? So ketamine and psilocybin, completely different compounds working on completely different receptors. The ketamine is working on the glutamate receptors, the NMDA uh, receptors, and the psilocybin is working on the traditional sort of serotonin, the 5-HT2A receptors in the brain. And so, look, I think there's a big knock-on and spillover effect to how patients feel with both of these processes. But the, the psilocybin, the magic mushrooms, as people call it, well, I think that, that name is got quite a lot of connotations to it, but um, I think the, the magic lies in the person and not in the in the mushrooms. But the evidence for both of these processes is really starting to come through now, and it's quite exciting. So uh, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore in America have done really, really unbelievable, rigorous research using psilocybin or magic mushrooms to help patients with depression and smoking cessation. They've got Alzheimer's trials. They've got trials for anorexia. Uh, and the, the evidence is coming through now. There's a really great evidence for new onset cancer diagnosis and patients that are really anxious having been diagnosed with cancer. And so this, this sort of uh, field really started to fascinate me in 2018. Uh, I sort of battled with my own mental issues as well and did quite a lot of research into this uh, and into epigenetics and sort of uh, the, the sort of progression or passing down of traumas and, and mental conditions through generations. And I think you and I had quite a long conversation about that. And yes. the sort of epigenetic side of things really, uh, really resonated with me. And I thought, well, maybe there is something in my own sort of history and in my own family history. And so I've been really interested in trying to get to the core for my patients and to try and manage them with a very holistic approach that doesn't exclude traditional uh, techniques and it doesn't exclude psychotherapy with a psychologist or a psychiatry with a, with a psychiatrist. And I certainly believe that patients should use all modalities that are available to them. But 
you know, psychiatrists contact us sometimes and they say, look, I've, I've tried everything. I've tried everything for this patient and they're not winning. And what can we consider now? Would you be willing to try a ketamine infusion? And that's the sort of perfect patient for ketamine therapy. How do you assess whether this is going to work with a person? Is there anything you do beforehand to figure out if it's the right treatment? Do you go through a bunch of questionnaires? Do you, what's your process? It's really, really important to see patients first. And I don't do ketamine infusions for patients without having seen them first as, as patients in my room and examining them properly and taking a proper history. Um, so I would see a patient in my room for an hour. I would take a full medical history from them, a, a full psychiatric history from them. And we would discuss their blood results, for example. We would make certain that uh, their thyroid function and vitamin B levels and iron and uh, their physiology has been checked and tested and that this isn't something um, physiological that could be causing their depression. Uh, and if that hasn't been done by their psychiatrist or psychologist, then I'm quite active in in making sure that that physiological reasons are excluded before proceeding with the uh, with the infusion therapy. Um, after that, once we've established that the patient is safe enough to do the infusion, that they don't have any underlying heart disease, that their blood pressure is well controlled because ketamine can obviously push blood pressure up, um, and that they don't have any other reasons why we can't do the infusion, such as a family history of any psychotic disease, uh, schizophrenia, and that they aren't in the manic phase of bipolar uh, disorder. You've got to be very careful that you don't push somebody yeah. um, further up in the manic phase. And um, so it has been used with good success with patients that are bipolar in the depressed phase. So, you know, we, we try and exclude all of these reasons for patients. Obviously, we don't do that for pregnant women. And so we, we've, we've taken a proper history and examined them and excluded the, the patients that shouldn't have this procedure. And there are certainly patients that I would say no to. And um, uh, there are other options that are available to them that we discuss with them. Once we've seen them and we've done the blood tests for them or reviewed their blood tests, uh, we then bring them in. And uh, the process is, is, I think it's quite a great process. They come in, they have an eye mask put over their eyes. They have very calming music playing to them without any words. So there are some playlists that uh, Johns Hopkins have created, for example. So there's certain playlists that they can listen to. And we put in a drip for them and we run the, the infusion over 45 minutes to an hour. And um, provided that they are, they feel safe and secure and comfortable and we're watching them quite closely from a blood pressure and heart rate and oxygen point of view, they feel quite safe. And if I, I get any sort of indication that they're not doing well, I'll come and just sort of hold their hand and, and you know, lift the headphones off and just tell them that they're okay. And that normally brings them down nicely and most patients report a really good uh, experience, although, yes, it's extremely weird. The weird is the word that gets thrown around quite a lot and strange and wonderful and vortexes and colours and walls falling in on themselves. So it's, a, it's quite an interesting experience. But I suppose everyone experiences this differently. Yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on what's, like you said, it's not the, the magic's not in the mushroom, it's in the person. With most psychedelic journeys, um, assisted psychedelic journeys, there's a lot of emphasis put on the support post-treatment and the unpacking of the experience. So is this also something that you do with your patients? Do they, do you refer them to a psychologist afterwards? I know that's quite tricky because not every psychologist understands the mechanism of what the treatment involves. 
Um, so what are your experiences with how you unpack this with people afterwards? Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I think the, the, the preparation work is extremely important and people having the right, setting the right intentions for what they want to get out of these experiences, whether it's with ketamine or with psilocybin or any of the psychedelics, setting the right intention beforehand and having the right set and setting we talk about on the actual day itself, so the patient's mindset going into the actual procedure and the setting, the physical setting, a safe setting for them that they feel safe is extremely important. And then the third and probably probably one of the most integral parts is the integration. And the integration uh, should be done with the professional. And I usually would refer the patients back after the series of infusions, depending on how many they have, I would refer them back to the person that referred them to me. Uh, if they were sent to me by a psychiatrist, I would send them back to their psychiatrist or if they were sent by a psychologist back to their psychologist. Uh, for the patients that I do the infusions for, I always bring them back afterwards to chat to me so that we can unpack it and we can see how they're doing and, and, and see how their medication is and adjust their medication. And hopefully for a lot of the patients at some point, try and get them off of their medication, not completely, but at least try and reduce it so that their side effects are a lot less. So... These compounds seem to, from what I've researched, affect people really deeply and quite permanently. So uh, from the, the, the research papers that Johns Hopkins puts out and a lot of podcasts that I've listened to, there are stories of people who've been battling with PTSD for 10, 20 years um, that don't respond to any treatment. And within a couple of ketamine infusion treatments, say three or four, a couple of weeks, they are almost completely back to normal and functioning in society. So what is the mechanism that a chemical like this does? What does it do to the brain that your normal other treatments can't, can't do? Which I find that part really, really interesting. Is it, yeah, it's almost um, a, a bit of a science meets spiritual question. So it's not entirely scientific, but I suppose there must be some kind of understanding of you know, are there different parts of the brain that are activated? Are there different pathways that are ignited? Or is it just that experience of coming to terms and, and making peace with oneself and seeing oneself as part of a bigger picture? Was it a combination of these things? What, what's, what's your gut feel on this? I think the first sort of humble answer is to say that I don't think we understand the brain very much at all. Yeah. And I think a lot of these treatment options are really new. I mean, coming out within the last 50, 60 years. And uh, we, we're making assumptions based on uh, evidence for a very short duration of time. So I think for the, for the most part, people don't exactly understand how these compounds work. Um, the, the sort of assumption for ketamine is that it increases a, a hormone called BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which if you break that up is essentially like fertilizer for the brain and fertilizer for the brain cells and can cause new brain cells to form or neurogenesis and can cause new connections to form between old brain cells or synaptogenesis. So you, you, you can maybe teach an old dog new tricks, so to speak. So um, I think that the, the post-traumatic stress disorder patients keep reliving nightmares and flashbacks and the anxiety associated with that. And I think that the ketamine really just helps them to unpack that in a safe uh, emotional environment for them and cause new connections to form so that they're not stuck in those yeah. sort of erroneous pathways that keep taking them back to the emotions associated with what happened to them. And so, 
you're right. I think the, the, the best person for the ketamine is the treatment-resistant depression and the PTSD patient. And I've had a lot of patients that have been through wars, the Angolan wars. I've had a patient that's been in the Afghanistan war that has had a profound, profound response to the ketamine. And wow. it, really, it really can help them rewire. And I don't think they'll ever forget forget what, what happened to them, but it, they certainly try and erase and delete the emotional response to what happened. Yes, it's, it feels like you, you you still have a very good understanding of what you went through, but the sting is taken out. One tries to understand it in logical terms because that's what the brain does. But I think there's just things in life we've got to just accept that we might not ever understand and just accept them for the gifts they are. Yeah, for sure. I think you made a really valid point as well uh, regarding the sort of mystical experience. And it was one of the, the aspects of the Johns Hopkins trial where they were saying that the mystical experience, that sort of ineffable, indescribable connection to something else that was out there was really one of the things that that patients would bring back to reality and say, well, maybe I met God or maybe I've found my higher being or my higher power that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous talk about. So that sort of mystical experience, I think they, they, they have found is a really important part of the experience for patients. And uh, the, the ketamine infusion certainly get patients into a zone or a K-hole, if you want to call it, where these sort of mystical experiences happen, uh, similar to what they're finding with the psilocybin with the mushrooms. Yeah, you know, I don't think we can ever really, as much as we want to, separate science from spirit. Uh, I think it's one in the same. And I think, you know, human beings have been trying to, well, science is about proof or disproof. And... There are, there's always going to be experiences that I think every doctor will have where they can't explain how something happened or why it happened. And very often it's it's doctors, it's anesthetists and um, neurosurgeons who have the most fascinating stories about people remembering their surgery or recalling conversations of what the doctors were talking about while they were their head was cut open. And things that cannot be explained, which we want to explain away, but it's it's really interesting at this point in human history where we are given this um, ability and opportunity to use such powerful chemical substances, I suppose man-made to an extent, some are, some aren't, and to again be awed by this this. It comes to it just feels to me like a download from from something else. It's um it's just something very reverent that we should be respecting. And it's it's, it's quite remarkable, especially when you're looking at the, the amount of trauma in the world nowadays and the wars and what people are going through, especially over the last couple of years, that there is something where we can remap our experience of life and and live better, which is a, it's just such a remarkable gift. Jeez, yeah, that was beautiful to see. Thank you. Um, so another thing that I, I really believe is that if we don't deal with emotion and we don't work through emotion and work through anxiety, depression, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, it becomes a disease state in the body. And leaving trauma untreated really impacts the immune system. We know this because most of us know that when we're feeling miserable, we tend to get sick. We, we will get a cold or we'll get a headache or the body hurts. And we see this in depression a hell of a lot when people are really depressed. They ache all over. 
And when we can fix that sense of despair and hopelessness and helplessness, the pain goes away. And fibromyalgia is one of those prime examples of what we think and how we feel emotionally manifests in the body. What are your experiences with this mind-body connection and and our immune system? Absolutely. I think that it's really, really, really important. And I think there's a whole field Psycho neuro immunoendocrinology or endocrino immunology, it's a PNIE or something yes. like that. So, there's a whole field of you can't disconnect the mind and uh, body from itself, and that there are brain connections to every single part of your body. And so, if your mind's unwell, your body is unwell. And that has been my, you know, my experience in my practice is that I find that a lot of autoimmune conditions have a stress basis. And so, the wonderful Canadian psychiatrist, Gabriel Matter, yes. that wrote a book, When the Body Says No. And, you know, it really is explaining the, the hidden toll of stress on a person's, not just on their psyche, but on developing cancers and on developing autoimmune conditions. And I really think that the sort of hidden un- underlying stress, the, the repressed emotions that you hold down in your in your psyche and in Pandora's box, so to speak, eventually starts knocking at the at the walls of that box and it wants yeah. to come out. And we sort of manifest that knocking as physical complaints and as pains and as autoimmune conditions. And look, obviously there's a genetic component to this and an environmental component to this. Yeah. And I'm not ignoring Western science on this. I just think that we don't have the full picture as yet. I don't think we have all of the pieces of the puzzle to to piece together the cause of these diseases where we just say we're not sure, we're not sure why. Yeah, yeah, and I absolutely. So has anybody started studying um, psychedelics or or ketamine therapy with um, dementia, with brain degeneration? Because if it creates BDNF, which is what exercise does as well, and I mean, there must be something where somebody's gone, well, let's try this for Alzheimer's and see what happens. If it's creating new neural pathways, surely someone's gone down this road. They, they absolutely have. You're 100% correct. Um, I've got, I've, I've read some research on psilocybin for Alzheimer's and uh, I've had a psychiatrist uh, in Johannesburg as well that has uh, spoken to me regarding some of his patients that have got Alzheimer's disease that would microdose with psilocybin and would show a remarkable response to, to the psilocybin as a, as a sort of non-psychedelic dosing, a very small microdose of that, and would, would show huge improvements to that. There are studies underway with ketamine, although it's, uh, it's been said that patients with Alzheimer's um, you know, their, their sort of sense of reality is a bit distorted. And so the trials were, I think, a bit difficult mm. to come by. But the hypothesis in that there's BDNF and there's new brain cell formation that maybe we could prevent or yeah. slow down Alzheimer's is our trials underway for that, yes. It seems that it's everywhere you turn, one in five people are having some some form of dementia. Where we never saw this 50 years ago. I mean, my grandparents, they died from other things. And nowadays, dementia is everywhere. And I really do believe that there is a, an environmental component to this. Stress is ridiculous. We don't deal with stress. But there's so many other inputs in the environment that are tearing our brains apart, quite literally. And it's, yeah, it's really great to know that 
someone's thinking out the box because I know that that the the treatment for I think it was Alzheimer's, I think it was a Pfizer um, drug was pulled because it was doing more harm than good. So if these infusions and these alternate ways of looking at it are useful, I think we're onto something good here. Yeah, and you know, I mean, people are obviously living a lot longer these days, so that the, the incidence in that of dementia is obviously increasing as patients are living longer. But, uh, the sort of underlying conditions, the underlying cardiovascular diseases are not being treated early enough, and patients are very often developing vascular dementias and that as well. So I think there's a, a huge overlap, mind, body, and soul, so to speak, here yeah, with the stress, with genetic problems, with uh, the, the diets that we eat are really terrible. The foods are extremely processed. And I think that uh, you're right. I think that we, the world that we live in now is not conducive to aging well. And we don't look after ourselves the way we're supposed to. Yeah, well, you know, we've been brought up to believe in the at least the last half of the 20th century that there's a pull for everything and that you can live however because you can just take a pull for that and it's just so quickly proved to be untrue but you know also somebody goes to their doctor and expects their doctors to have all the answers you know you go to a um, a cardiologist and all they can really treat is your heart yeah it's like we expect our doctors to be these bibles of every you know solution every answer what are your experiences with with patients we, or they come to you and they just expect all the answers and it's it's a whole body-mind experience that we have to change and we have to almost go back in time and teach people how to reset their entire physiology just to get well. Yeah, for sure. I think some of the, some of the healthiest patients that I have are patients that make it into their 90s and they're on hardly any medication, if any at all. And I think the, the, the right sort of approach is to practice preventative medicine so that patients deal with their psychological stresses, that they prevent stress from creeping into their lives, that they prevent burnout from creeping into their lives, that they manage their lifestyles properly and eat properly, and that they outsource their mental health to the right people. And those are the type of patients that I have that are hardly taking any medication. They're not taking any antibiotics at all. So, the, of course, modern medicine is, is helping patch up the, the holes in the boat, so to speak, for patients that are not living the right lifestyle. But that is leading to uh, diseases of, of the elderly. Whereas we, if we live properly, we should live to a really great age without having any of these conditions. The other thing is, is that I think the medical field really places so much emphasis on what they know and a lot less emphasis on what they don't know. And I think that we need to humble ourselves and to yeah. say that in 2,000 years' time, we, we might look back on the medications that we prescribe in today and think, oh, I can't believe they did that. Yes. Uh, a couple thousand years ago, we were drilling heads, uh, drilling holes into people's heads for headaches. And, you know, they would come to their doctor at that stage and yes. the doctor would manage to convince them that that was the right treatment for them. Mm. So here we are sitting and we're convincing people to take certain tablets and statins and dyspins mm. and blood pressure pills. And maybe in 2,000 years' time, they'll look back saying, I can't believe they did that. So um, I don't think that doctors should be seen as the sort of final frontier to, yes. to fix someone. I really think that preventative health is the, the right way to go and that doctors are there to sort of pick up the slack at the, at the back end. Of course, there are a lot of medical conditions that are inherited and that do need chronic treatment for mm. and, and uh, of course. You know, they, they don't fit into this conversation. But yeah. for the most part, I think that we, we really need to take a preventative approach to treating mm. people. In functional medicine, we talk of a multidisciplinary practice where you've got 
all sorts of brains and minds applying themselves to fixing, not fixing, but helping somebody fix themselves, you know. And I think personally that's the way medicine is going. It should be going that way anyway because we can't, you can't be all things to all people all the time. And very much the responsibility is on the patient to do the work. And, you know, there's there's amazing things like, like ketamine infusions and we can microdose at home, but if we don't take care or take responsibility of our own health, nothing's going to change. And it does take a team of people, I think, saying the same thing, sort of imparting the same message over and over to get patients to understand that actually they've got to do the work. Yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of people go and see medical uh, professionals, uh, just professionals in general, and they get given the information that they know would help them in their, their health and in their lifestyles. And like you say, they're not prepared to do the work. They're not prepared to change their lifestyle so that they can be well. They would rather take medication uh, as opposed to actually put in the effort and put in the work. And, you know, you, you very often hear people say, but I've got no time. I think that's the biggest myth and biggest farce you can make time. Ah, totally. You know, you can you, if you can make time for your work, you can make time for your own health. And at the end of the day, I think people that put the most amount of effort and energy into their own health and into their own wellness are the ones that reap the rewards at the end of the day. What I find quite amazing is the people who have really high positions in major companies are the ones who are who never use that excuse that they don't have time. It's everybody else. And these people really don't have time. They are busy minute to minute, but they've got, they understand how to prioritize their time. And that, that excuse of, I don't have, have time is just a diversion that we all tell ourselves when we can't manage our lives, when everything spins out of control and the skills, you know, this is why I think the unpacking experience and the support of a psychologist is so important. And especially cognitive behavioral therapy is to, is to, step back and look at how you're doing life and do it differently if it isn't working. Because, oh my goodness, so many people just carry on doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And it's never going to work this way. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I said, I think you have to outsource your health. I mean, I have a psychiatrist that I see and I see a psychologist myself and I've been to health coaches and I have a hypnotherapist that Mm. I've gone to go and see. I think there's a whole bunch of people that have got skills that I don't have that uh, they're not living in my mind. They're living in their own minds and they can help me guide my mind to make me a better version of myself. And I think that's how people should, should treat it. You know, just as we've got financial planners and uh, you know, we've got people looking after our, uh, you know, our affairs. I think we need to do that for our health as well. And instead of just thinking that we've all got it under control. No, I completely agree. I think my best lesson, biggest lesson in the last 12 months is um, building a team to support my health because people come to me for health all the time and they they think I've got it handled. I don't have anything handled if I don't create a team to handle me as well. And we're all like this. You know, we've all got to be accountable to somebody and not just ourselves. No one person can do can do everything. I think that's a really, really important message. Uh, sure. And I think us as seeing people that come to us with issues or with problems and uh, it can be quite draining that you develop an sort of empathy fatigue where you start sucking in their hurts and their pain and, and trying to help them and realizing that you're actually a human yourself and that you really need to unpack it yourself and have somebody to help you. And I think that that applies to a lot of people. 
they, they internalize their problems for such a long period of time that their problems start becoming reality as physical symptoms. And- Completely. Let's go back to talking about family constellations and inherited trauma, because this is, this is, it resonates for me. I know it does for you too, but, you know, it makes so much sense that um, we inherit genetic illness. We can turn that on and off with, with um, you know, if we know how to, but we do inherit, you know, in the Bible, and I'm not religious whatsoever, they call it sins of the father. Yeah. So we inherit Maybe it's because we see how our parents behave and we are around that from an early age, or there is something going on in the DNA that we have yet to learn about that actually passes down traits from our uh, psychological traits, emotional traits, behavioral traits from our from generations past. And maybe it even skips a generation and you don't know this because you never knew your great-grandfather. I find this so interesting. What are your thoughts? And I know you've got lots of thoughts on this topic. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely fascinated in this sort of a branch. And, and um, sort of, if I can just come to my own sort of history quickly, that I really was fascinated to unpack what happened to both of my grandparents being in World War II and being in concentration camps and witnessing all that death and trauma and witnessing their friends dying and and being away from their family for such a long period of time and wondering whether or not that had any sort of impact on myself. And it's something that I'm working through today. But uh, the sort of science is coming now as uh, as epigenetics and they're sort of unpacking the the traits that we inherit from our parents, um, not just the physical traits, but the emotional traits and the sort of past traumas that are passed down. So there was a fascinating study that was done with mice and I don't know how they figured this out but mice like the smell of cherry blossom and they would then shock their little feet while they were smelling cherry blossom and eventually those mice developed a fear response and they would run away from the cherry blossom uh, fearing that they might be shocked and two generations down the line those mice's grandchildren never having smelt cherry blossom uh, never having been shocked before smelling cherry blossom for the first time, all of a sudden we're running away uh, with a fear response and their receptors were changing in their nose uh, towards cherry blossom and it was fascinating. And so I really think that there's something here that we need to look in as a species and say, we actually come from a pretty dark time. We come from the First World War and the Second World War and all the wars between that and the Vietnam War and the Korean War and uh, genocides that have happened. And we are a, a damaged species that potentially carries a lot of past life or sins of the father's traumas with us. And how do we fix that? Yes. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, I love that question because, you know, not one person or very few people that I come in contact with in my practice have stunningly happy childhoods. I mean, there's always something, but this is this is just being human. And if we think about it, our parents were children of people who went through wars, maybe one, maybe two wars. And they didn't have parenting like we have parenting today. You know, so you've got a little boy, I've got a, a young daughter, and we we parent them in a way that has probably never been done in history. And, and consciously, you know, we watch what we say to them. We watch what we say about ourselves in front of them because we understand the kind of damage that can do, not damage, but how it changes the brain and how it changes a person's personality, where I think a lot of our parents and grandparents 
were, were, went through a lot of physical abuse because that's all they knew. And that was passed down to us. So this is, this is not such, I mean, I, I guess you could call it generational inheritance, but this is on a very um, 3D plane. And then there's also this epigenetic inheritance that goes back good knows, to the to the Elizabethan era, for heaven's sakes, and what went on then. So, you know, we can't blame our parents. No one can really. Yeah, sure. People do the best they can with what they've got. And what, if what they've got is inherently damaged, how can we expect them to do any better? But if we know this, then we can do better. Um, and that's the difference. And I think looking forward, I've got a lot of hope for the for the next generation because they've been brought up differently to any other generation. Yes, they've got their issues with electronics and who knows what else and pesticides, but it's different challenges. It's really, really interesting to take a step back and go, well, you can't blame anybody now. Again, my life is my responsibility. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the exciting thing about, I mean, my generation and my kids' generation and me never having been through a war and is that we now have the tools and the resources and the internet connections that they didn't have previously before and the communication between people to say, right, maybe, maybe I'm damaged epigenetically or genetically and maybe I carry through trauma, but what are the tools now that I can do to fix this? And, and how can I prevent this spread further down through generations. How can I stop my boy and my kids from, from, from passing this on down to their kids? Is that possible? And can we sort of iron out and edit out our genes that we don't pass on these? Um, and and what, what is the work that we have to do to prevent this from being passed down further? Yeah, I think the first step in the work is having these conversations with our children and just having like frank conversations about things our parents would never have known to have conversations about and I think once the brain grasps the concept it will run with it and that's the magic thing about the human brain is once you open a door in there it's party starts you know whether you are infusing your brain with a chemical that makes the party louder or if you just gently you know having these conversations with friends with family with children there's a lot of hope but it takes awareness and it's going to take a lot of us waking up and yeah, if the last couple of years with this this pandemic hasn't woken people up, I don't know what will, but at least it gets the conversation going, yeah, whatever sure. side of the fence you're on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad to see the sort of polarisation of uh, uh, pro-vaccinators and anti-vaccinators oh. and it's just quite, it's difficult to to sort of see that we're all one species and, and just to get along together and, and have the conversation in a sort of civil setting. I think that isolation that we had of lockdown really didn't do us very well as a species. And so I think that we're going to be dealing with a lot of epigenetic traumas mm. through our kids and their kids because of what's happened now with COVID. Uh, if you just think about the, the young children that learn from our facial expressions and the way we move our lips and the way our, and here you've got yep. to put teachers with masks on them and these poor children are going to have uh, huge issues. They're going to have huge trust issues with temperature guns being pointed at their heads and, you know, so yes. that's their traumas to now deal with and what do they carry through with us from pre-COVID? So I think mm. it's, it's fascinating and it's going to be really interesting to see what comes with this transgenerational family constellation work. And, you know, I've seen a family constellation guy myself and it was absolutely fascinating. And um, mm. I'm excited to see what 
we can do as a species to sort of better everyone for always. Yes, that's a really nice note to to wrap up on better everyone for always so sean thank you so much for your time this evening we could probably go on for another hour so i think we'll have to book another time to chat further but um yeah it's been fabulous thank you so much thank you so much for having me it was a real pleasure chatting to you and i really appreciate it thank you once again for joining me for another episode of the reinvent health podcast as usual, all of my guests' details can be found in the show notes page on Apple Podcast, Anchor, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Please don't forget to rate on Apple and leave a review. 